Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Is the police officer in Chicago a public servant or a soldier? Last summer, following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, protesters took to the streets in cities across the U.S., and many were met with police forces that looked ready for battle. Officers armed with riot gear, tanks, and firearms. Today, we explore the growing militarization of law enforcement, not just in Chicago and Illinois, but across the country. It's part of our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we explore the ins and outs of the city's institutions and how they could better serve residents. Joining us now is Radley Balco of The Washington Post. He's author of the 2013 book, Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces. Radley, welcome to Reset. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I want to start with the title of your book, Radley. What's a warrior cop? So basically what the book does is it, it, it traces the, the rise of policing from a um, kind of protect and serve uh, mentality to a much more aggressive kind of warrior mentality. Um, this idea that police are continually under fire, that they have a target on their backs, that there's a war on cops, a phrase that we've heard a lot over the last several years, um, and looks at how both equipment uh so things like you know camouflage uniforms or what they call battle dress uniforms or bdus you know guns um armored vehicles how how that has contributed to uh, kind of a warrior approach to the job, uh, but also the mindset um, that has settled into a lot of police departments across the country, which is one that kind of sees um, the people that police are supposed to be protecting, um, not as citizens with rights, but as potential threats. And we see this a lot in sort of police culture. If you look at, you know, policing T-shirts or police forums online where officers are, you know, can comment anonymously, you see that policing as a profession has become sort of psychologically isolated uh, from the rest of society. There's Mm -hmm. this phrase, whatever I need to do to get home at night, which is something you kind of hear more from soldiers on a battlefield than traditionally you've heard from law enforcement officers. So the book looks at kind of how we got to this point where, where policing has become you know, increasingly more sort of militaristic and more a soldier's approach than a peace officer's approach to the job. So on this topic of the militarization of police, you just mentioned the mindset. Can you just explain that a bit more? What do you mean? Well, I think there's a mindset that's settled into a lot of uh, policing culture that there's cops and there's everybody else. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting kind of duality going on in policing in law enforcement right now. You have most of the big city police departments in the country are run by fairly progressive police chiefs. That is, you know, people who believe in reform, that there are race issues in policing that need to be fixed, and leaders who believe that, you know, we need police need to be less aggressive, um, need to emphasize de-escalation, more training on conflict resolution, that sort of thing. At the same time, within police unions and within the kind of rank and file of police, you see the switch toward what I've called no hesitation policing. It's it's this kind of aggressive style of policing that basically argues that police aren't shooting people enough and they aren't being aggressive enough. Uh, and you see this a lot in the bulletproof warrior classes, um, the lethal force training that uh, goes on across the country by groups like Caliber Press, 
Um, these are groups that have trained more police officers, Caliber Press in particular, to train more police officers than any organization in the country. And they really stress this idea that that it's cops against the world, that you know we're an extraordinary violent society, that police need to be shooting more people, that they need to get over their hesitation, the natural hesitation we feel before taking the life of another human being. And I think both of these trends are kind of happening at the same time, and it, it explains a lot of the maybe kind of mixed messages we see coming from law enforcement where you might have a chief saying something like, you know, we need more de-escalation, we need conflict resolution, we need to get police out of the business of, you know, responding to mental health crises. At the same time, you get sort of defenses of, you know, not so much, I guess, Derek Chauvin, there seemed to be sort of universal opposition to what he did to George Floyd. But Mm -hmm. a lot of these police shootings, a lot of the defenses you see come from this other kind of faction within law enforcement. You mentioned the the thought of them not shooting people enough. And I think of the riot gear, the armored vehicles, the M16 rifles. What message is law enforcement sending to citizens? Well, I think it sends a message that, you know, you aren't citizens with rights, that you're seen as a potential threat to police officers. And and you see this sort of across a wide array of of policing strategies and tactics. Uh, So you mentioned protest, right? So we have decades of of research showing that the way you respond to a protest often becomes self-fulfilling. So if you respond to a protest with officers in uniform who aren't shielding their faces, aren't shielding their name tags or their badge numbers, uh, and who are told that they're there to facilitate the First Amendment rights of the protesters, those protests tend to go peacefully. There are exceptions, and you have to be prepared and have your riot team sort of on, on guard. But Approaching protests that way tend to have much more favorable outcomes than what we've seen in other situations where police are basically responding immediately to protests with full riot gear, with, you know, the guns, the snipers, with, uh, you know, hiding their faces, hiding their names and, and badge numbers, treating the protests as, as if they expect violence to break out, and then it inevitably does. Research has shown, just a mountain of research has shown that protesters tend to police themselves when people start becoming violent or rogue or destroying property. It looks bad for the protests. It looks bad for the group. But when the police start acting violently, it kind of unites both sort of the what you might call the good and bad protesters against the common enemy in mm-hmm. the cities where police were kettling, you know, forcing protesters into smaller and smaller spaces where they responded aggressively and where there were sort of unprovoked attacks. Uh, the protests tended to grow violent. When did we get here? When did law enforcement stray from the role of a traditional cop? Yeah, so I'm kind of guilty of this too. I do think there's a danger in us sort of pining for a salad days of policing that that never really existed, right? I, I do think police have become more militarized. Um, their gear has become more militarized. I think they've adopted a more militaristic mindset. But of course, policing in the you know 50s, 60s, and 70s had its own set of problems. Um, so I don't want to sort of you know pine for a, an era that didn't exist. But specifically talking about militarization, uh, I think it's really starts during the 1980s uh, when the Reagan administration takes the war on drugs metaphor and, and makes it very literal. They create these joint task forces where police are training with elite military units. Um, They informally start making surplus uh, military equipment with the Pentagon available to police departments across the country. And in fact, during the Reagan administration, there was even talk in hearings in Congress about uh, bringing the military in to actively fight the drug war. So having, you know, Marines go up and down streets and conduct drug raids. Um, This is all 
pretty dangerous. Um, you know, in this country, we've long had a firm line between uh, civilian policing and the military, uh, and for good reason, right? The military's job is to annihilate a foreign enemy, um, you know, to kill people and break things. Uh, the police, their job is to protect our rights, and these are two very different jobs. But when it comes to some areas of law enforcement, uh, particularly the drug war, uh, there has been a blurring of that line. Uh, and so we saw that throughout the Reagan administration. We see it uh, throughout the Clinton administration, particularly as the federal government. You know, you see states start legalizing medical marijuana, and the federal government responds by sending federal SWAT teams to raid these treatment centers. Um, you know, these treatment centers weren't a threat to anyone. You mm -hmm. know, nobody's going to pull a gun out from under the counter on a bunch of federal agents. That show of force was political, right? It was to make a statement that, that the federal government didn't want to tolerate this. Um, and then we see a, another sort of ramping up of militarization after September 11th. We get the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which starts giving out grants to police departments across the country to buy yet more militarized equipments to fight the war on terror. I want to pick up on a couple of things that you, you just talked about, Radley. Back to protests. Right here in Chicago last summer, Mayor Lightfoot called in the Illinois National Guard to deal with protests and, and the looting after George Floyd was killed. Chicago Magazine actually said it was the very definition of a militarized response. But then you have those who would say, well, they had to use what tools were in their arsenal to keep the peace. What do you right. think? Well, look, I, you know, I think when things get out of hand, when you when you start having looting, rioting, when you have arson, when people's safety is, is in question, you have to, you know, respond. You have to uh, restore the peace. You know, the National Guard is interesting. I talk, I write about the, the use of the National Guard in the book. And, you know, symbolically, I think it's important and I think it matters. I think sending the National Guard out too quickly, um, you know, sort of implies a kind of martial state where we've got these sort of part-time soldiers on standby. In practicality, the National Guard actually tends to treat people a little better than police officers do, um, perhaps because the National Guard are, you know, they do tend to be part-time um, and, you know, they tend to be civilians in their regular life. So the National Guard can be a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, you know, generally speaking, I think the way to kind of respond to protests in a free society in a way that both preserves the right to speak and protest and criticize the government, but that also uh, protects the city is to first respond sort of assuming the protesters are going to be peaceful. Uh, you always want to be prepared. Um, but as one former DC police chief told me, um, you know, he would always have his riot squad on a bus on a side street sort of out of view, but ready, you know, in case he needed them, but that he found, you know, he got a much better response, a much better cooperation from protesters when officers just showed up sort of in their regular uniforms and, mm -hmm. and were told again that their job is to facilitate protests, not to shut it down. What about the language law enforcement uses? The war on drugs, the war on crime. Yeah, I think these are problems. Um, and, you know, they, the, the, those things didn't start with law enforcement. They started from politicians who, you know, wanted to sort of exploit fear of crime and fear of drugs uh, to get into office. Um, and I think law enforcement, you know, adopted that and followed suit. Um, but, you know, I do think we've seen a real it may not even be a new thing. It may just be that it's being exposed for the first time. But you know, there have been multiple reports over the last year of you know, law enforcement posts on Facebook, uh, Twitter, in closed Facebook groups, on message boards. And, you know, what we're seeing is when police officers are talking and no one's hearing, um, not all of them, of course, but a large percentage or an unnervingly large percentage are quick to engage in you know, racism, 
you know, misogyny, sort of celebrations of police violence uh, and police use of force. I think one study found that one in five of the retired officers that they looked at in the survey had posted something along those lines. And I think it was like one in 10 current or active officers. So, you know, like I said, I think we have seen a real um, isolation of policing as a profession. And I think part of that is driven by kind of the power of the police unions. I think it's been driven in part by politicians who are afraid to, you know, recommend reforms or to stand up to police unions. Mm -hmm. But we've really seen uh, a lot of separation there. And I think it's something to be worried about. Last week on the show, Radley, we spoke about what it would take to implement real reform in the Chicago Police Department. Let's listen to a little bit of what WBEZ reporter Patrick Smith had to say. A fundamental change at the Chicago Police Department is going to require a cultural change, I think a bottom-up cultural change. And that is just a really hard thing to do. You know, there are 13,000 police officers in Chicago. Obviously, CPD has has a very long and troubled history, and changing culture, if it's going to happen at all, is going to be really difficult and take a long time. Patrick mentioned the culture of CPD and how that's the biggest hurdle to reform. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest barrier to reform in in any police department in the country, but especially in a place like Chicago, where you have such a kind of a rich law enforcement history, you have a strong union, and you have a very strong uh, and sort of cohesive police culture there. I write actually a lot about Chicago and the update to my book um, because I think it's a, a really kind of telling example. You know, in Chicago, in Baltimore, in Cleveland, in a lot of cities that saw spikes in homicide over the last couple of years while crime went down in the rest of the country. Um, I should say, you know, last year, murders went up everywhere. But before that, uh, in some cities, uh, homicides continued to go up. Um, and they were all places that had a history of mistrust with the police department, a history of DOJ studies finding, you know, mass racial profiling, violations of civil rights, illegal police shootings. You know, places that have a lot of crime tend to be places where people don't trust the police department very much, and in fact may trust the police less than they trust criminals, right. uh, and so are, are unwilling or, or unlikely to cooperate with police. But there's a really another really sort of telling anecdote I found, which is, you know, after the Laquan McDonald shooting in Chicago, there was a commission that issued a report on policing in the city, and I believe it was the Chicago Reader pointed out that uh, there was a similar report issued after a similar shooting back in the 1970s. And the two reports, which are about 40, 45 years apart, are remarkably and depressingly similar in their conclusions, which is that policing is is overly aggressive, that uh, there's very little accountability, there's very little investigation of misconduct or citizen complaints, that you know people of color feel especially profiled and victimized. I mean, these reports were, you know, basically my lifetime apart, uh, about 40, 45 years apart, and very little had changed. Um, and I think that hmm. demonstrates kind of the power, the lasting power of police culture, particularly when you have a strong union backing it up. Well, to that end, in your opinion, what's the ideal police officer and the ideal relationship between police and the communities they're serving? Well, I think ideally you want a police department that sees themselves as servants of the people in their communities. Um, You want police officers ideally to sort of look like the community that they serve, to live in the community they serve so that they have a stake in them, Um, to see themselves as more as guardians than warriors. But I also think, you know, the George Floyd protests and the discussion that's come out of them, I think 
is a good opportunity to kind of re-examine what we expect of policing. You know, I think even law enforcement groups agree that we expect far too much out of police officers, that we expect them to be social workers, we expect them to be school resource officers, we expect them to negotiate domestic disputes, right? You know, I'm not an abolitionist. I do think we need law enforcement to arrest people, to, you know, protect us when, you know, someone is trying to harm us. Um, but I do think there are lots of areas where we should be using resources other than policing. So uh, there's very little evidence showing that police officers in schools make schools safer. There's no real reason why we need police to do traffic enforcement. A lot of the, the incidents that we've seen over the years of, of escalations of police beatings, shootings, altercations stem from a traffic stop and the kind of mutual distrust that exists between police officers who are trained from the academy on to view every traffic stop as a potential ambush to the motorists who don't trust police because of, you know, whether it's because you're black or brown and have heard stories or similar, you know, something has happened between you and a police officer. Um, if we got police out of that business uh, and made the road safer, we can do it through engineering, using things like roundabouts, better timing of, of red lights, um, using cameras to catch um, certain infractions. You know, that's another way that we can sort of reduce mm -hmm. um, the policing footprint. Another one is, is violence interrupters, um, these groups that, you know, go to high violence neighborhoods like Cure Violence, which have had a lot of success in Chicago. Uh, and then groups like Cahoots uh, in Eugene, Oregon, which is spreading across the country, which basically is saying that when someone's having a mental health crisis, we should be sending a counselor and a paramedic, not necessarily a SWAT team. Yeah. And that has had success around the country too. And with very little downside, in fact, um, uh, people think that in these cases, you have to have armed officers on hand in case somebody having a mental health crisis lashes out. But what we find is that having armed officers there actually encourages the lashing out or makes it more likely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been covering these issues for uh, about 15 to 20 years now. And I think the climate right now is more ripe for real reform, substantive reform than it's been since I've been on this issue. Um, but it is also important, you know, to get it right um, and to make sure that we, we take advantage of this opportunity to uh, really fundamentally change um, policing or we're going to have you know more incidents more protests and and i think more violence that's radley balco author of the book rise of the warrior cop the militarization of america's police forces radley thanks so much for talking with us my pleasure thanks for having me on Nationally, police shot and killed more than 1,000 people in 2020. In fact, U.S. police kill far more citizens than departments in any other developed nation. Why is that? And what can Chicago and other major cities learn from other countries? On the line with us now is Paul Hirschfield, a sociologist who focuses on policing at Rutgers University. Paul, welcome to Reset. Hi, it's great to be here. Paul, you've studied policing in the U.S., but also in Europe. How would you say that the American approach to policing compares with other countries? Well, American policing really stands out in a number of respects. Uh, mostly, it's the hyper-localized nature of how policing is governed. We have over 15,000 all-purpose police departments, which are typically loosely regulated by state authorities. Uh, and so there is just a cabbage patch of different policies, uh, and some departments do things very well, and some departments fall short in many respects. 
So that's the uh, number one reason that we differ. Uh, there's also differences in terms of the length of training. Um, police officers here typically receive uh, on average about 21 weeks of uh, classroom instruction, whereas the European standard is about two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so that affords opportunities to train officers in many skills that um, American police typically are deficient in. I mean, I could go on. There are many other reasons why we differ. Well, well tell me how America's gun culture factors in here. Well, uh, it factors hugely in a very direct way, of course. Police officers face a real threat of uh, suspects who are armed and hostile. And that means that uh, police officers are hyper-prepared for that possibility and may perceive sudden movements as deadly threats and act accordingly, even when it turns out that that is uh, unfounded. Uh, that's pretty rare in Europe. It also has huge implications for training. Uh, much of our training is centered on those how to avoid those worst-case scenarios where officers face deadly threats. And given the short time frame of training, that means that police are hyper-prepared for threats and less well-prepared uh, in terms of handling common problems that they might run into, uh, people with mental health issues, substance issues, homelessness. Uh, we don't orient our officers adequately and equip them adequately to yeah. deal with a source of social problems that typically give rise to crime. And legal gun ownership is also more prevalent here, right? That, that's got to play a part. Absolutely. Uh, we have uh, the highest guns per capita of any other country in the world that I'm aware of. And police are well aware that anyone they stop, thanks to permissive gun laws, could be carrying a gun. And that fear leads to a whole different orientation of policing that centers around, you know, focusing on protecting themselves, being aggressive in response to uh, slight provocations. Ironically, uh, we ask our officers to uh, sort of run headlong into dangerous situations, even though um, they face a real threat. Uh, we're not asking them to exercise extra restraint and put extra time and distance uh, between them and, and the threat. When Instead, we ask them to neutralize threats as quickly as possible. Um, and many police departments are rightly reconsidering that approach and working toward preventing volatile confrontations um, rather than asking officers to immediately respond and mm -hmm. so forth. You just talked about, you know, neutralizing the force. Why do American p police kill so many compared to European officers? What you just talked about kind of reminds me of the shoot to kill versus shoot right. to wound, right? Is that part of it? Yeah, there are many reasons. Uh, we talked about already the threat of guns and how that sort of alters police culture and training so much. It's also important to bear in mind that American police are simply more likely to encounter civilians. In Europe, of course, there are plenty of people with mental health issues, domestic violence, and, and so forth. But because people in the tough situations have greater stability, uh, more likely to have stable income, stable housing, family support. People in those situations are less likely to need to rely on the police. And local policing is just not uh, as accessible in most of Europe. And in addition, police officers there are typically not incentivized to make a lot of stops in order to help raise revenue or boost their arrest totals or make drug busts. So policing in general there is less aggressive. So you see far fewer 
were involuntary encounters in the first place. Mm -hmm. But once those encounters happen, police there are better equipped to handle them peaceably, right? They, they're better trained in how to de-escalate. Uh, so even when someone is armed in Europe with a knife, or, uh, you're far less likely to see those encounters end tragically. Uh, police are just better able to talk people down. And they're not, as you mentioned before, in terms of the uh, standard for what defines legal deadly force, that's very different. So the big question in America is, did the officer act reasonably? Was it reasonable to believe that perhaps that person with a knife was about to charge or uh, that person was about to pull out uh, a, a gun? Right. Uh, whereas in Europe, because of a different standard of absolute necessity, uh, being the legal standard, the question becomes, what alternatives could the officer have pursued? Could they have used a non-lethal weapon? You know, it's not about was the officer reasonable, it's about was it absolutely necessary to use deadly force? And that's a tougher standard to meet. I think that goes a long way toward explaining mm -hmm. why threatening individuals are less likely to be killed in Europe. Well, I'm curious if, if most European police aren't using deadly force, and what are they doing when they get into high-stress, fast-moving situations? Well, first of all, they're less likely to be aggressive in those situations in the first place, um, especially if you're an officer, say, in the United Kingdom where you don't even have a gun, right? You're more likely to wait for backup to try to put time and distance between yourself and that uh, threatening individual. Obviously, there are risks that this individual could act with violence while they're waiting for backup and so forth. But oftentimes that means that you don't overreact, right? What we see in cases like how Derek Chauvin responded uh, to George Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, the recent case of Andrew Brown Jr., where police act so rapidly uh, in order to neutralize a threat. Those situations are less common when officers have time to assess uh, the situation. So you're more likely to see officers put time and space between themselves and the threat in those countries, and then also work together to neutralize somebody with a knife, you know, with other devices, you know, teamwork, shields, tasers, overpowering the individual and so forth. Mm -hmm. Sticking with that uh, Derek Chauvin case and, and the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, some have argued that police funds should be reallocated to social services and that police aren't the best people to respond to mental health calls. You've touched on this a bit already, but tell us a bit more about what police are responsible for in other countries. Well, having a stronger social safety net means that people in need have other means, right, to seek help, you know, whether it's the mental health system, um, whether it's uh, subsidized housing. And so, yes, those countries do allocate a greater portion of their government dollars to what you would call a sort of preventive approach. And so that could be a guideline to how we reduce reliance on policing here. And there are examples, of course, of non-police personnel who respond to mental health calls in, in places like Stockholm, Sweden, but also here in uh, the United States and in, in Eugene, Oregon. But that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't plenty of police who do respond to all sorts of uh, disorderly persons' offenses in Europe. I think one difference is that police there are not as bound to a local municipality, right? They don't work for the municipality. And so 
they don't feel some special obligation to police certain individuals that might be threatening because of their race or to protect particular businesses or, or business communities. They don't have those kind of local ties. And I think part of the problem of being responsive in the United States is that also means being responsive to bias, class bias, racial bias, and, mm-hmm. and so forth. I, I don't think that is a the model in Europe. It's more of a model of national service. Police work for a national agency or a state agency. Policing is sort of part of the welfare state system of providing an equal uh, resource that everybody values. And Europeans are fine having uh, national police forces under that model, whereas in the United States, we very much value the principle of local control uh, and local responsiveness and even community control. That's what that seems to be the mantra in Chicago as well right now. Paul, this country has about 18,000 law enforcement agencies, including local, state and federal forces. How does that compare with other countries? We are off the charts. Uh, I can't think of any country with as many police uh, departments. There may be a few. uh, Mexico has several local police forces, but also very strong uh, federal police forces. But uh, we are an outlier in the world with respect to the hyper-localism and the governance of of our police. Uh, As I said before, in Europe, the model is having a single national police force or a couple of national police forces or having uh, state-controlled police like they have in Germany and uh, Switzerland. You've argued that standardized training and oversight, that they could help address issues in U.S. policing. How would that work exactly? Well, uh, here in New Jersey, we have an unusual model where the attorney general uh, is empowered to issue directives that are binding on police agencies, prosecutors, prisons. And we've seen in New Jersey some very, I think, effective directives coming out of that. Um, officers are have to have body cameras on. They're, they have to uh, intervene if they see misconduct, uh, tight restrictions on when police can use tasers or engage in pursuits. Other big cities, including Chicago, um, have uh, implemented some of those best practices. But having a single state entity to impose that on all police departments uh, like they have in Europe and and in New Jersey is a much more efficient way to go and and help ensure that high standards are met across the board. We don't have that typically, as you said, 18,000 police departments, about 15,200 all-purpose police departments, each making their own policies. It's a recipe for great disparity, to put it mildly, in the uh, quality of those policies and their enforcement. We know that Black Americans are about three times more likely than white Americans to be killed by police. So can you talk a bit more about how racism factors in and whether the police abroad have similar tense relationships with minorities? Yes, some of countries are more homogenous than others. So if you're looking at places like Sweden, you're not likely to see a lot of discrimination. But other countries have long histories of discrimination against particular groups. Uh, France stands out. But it tends to be correlated with the percentage of Arab uh, minorities, uh, North African Im- immigrants. So countries like Belgium, the Netherlands, and France have longstanding uh, issues and uh, a lot of advocacy around that. They also are bound by human rights treaties, the European Union, and so they get called out for uh, patterns of racism. And uh, it can be embarrassing for national politicians if they have a pattern of incidents 
deadly force is not you know a huge problem in any European country, but certainly there are problems of racial profiling and police brutality in Europe as well just less likely to manifest in uh, deadly force. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about police accountability. I want to circle back to the Derek Chauvin case, because in America, Mm -hmm. it is extremely rare for an on-duty police officer to be charged with murder after a a killing. What we just witnessed with Chauvin, that was an anomaly. So are police more likely to be held accountable in European countries? That's a really good question. There's a different system of accountability there. So when you have a centralized system, what that means, that creates greater distance between the officer and the people who are judging their misconduct. So in, in America, the norm would be the police chief would make the decision, whereas in Europe, that police chief might be sitting in the nation's capital, right? And so there are fewer conflicts of interest that would interfere with um, rendering uh, fair decisions on these cases. That said, they also have very powerful nationally organized police unions in Europe. And so if the oversight entities are seen as overreaching, uh, that theoretically could cause a major pushback. But I don't have statistics on the percentage of officers. It's difficult to compare, right? Because if you have less misconduct to begin with, uh, if you have different types of misconduct because of uh, a different system there, a different length of training and so forth, then it's hard to say whether there is greater accountability. I would say this, though, Europe certainly has not mastered the art of accountability. I'm disappointed by what I read more often than I am impressed in Mm. terms of officers being held accountable. Interesting. You lived in Chicago for several years, Paul. So what police practices in Europe do you think could be applied here in Chicago? Well, I think one big lesson is the importance of uh, independent oversight, Uh, whether it comes from an attorney general, right, which uh, we have in New Jersey. Such laws could be passed in Chicago or Illinois as as well. Uh, The length of training is obviously another lesson that could be implemented in Illinois, right? most of the major changes that we could look toward Europe for insight really do not involve municipal policing. I know that in Illinois and in, in Chicago, actually, there is a struggle over uh, greater community control. And I think that is the substitute for the lack of an independent government agency uh, that can really, I would say, break the stranglehold that the police department has over policy. So even though we're not moving toward a European centralized approach, which has its own dangers, especially if you don't trust the centralized government actors who would then have more power, uh, we're moving instead toward greater civilian control of the police, which I would also encourage anything to take some of the power away from the police departments themselves. Because after Floyd, I think most of the public now recognizes that the police cannot be trusted to reform themselves, right? If a policy will create greater work or greater danger for police officers, they tend not to uh, support it. So it really takes an outside non-police entity to Mm -hmm. impose reform on the police. And compared to what I saw when I lived in Chicago, you've already made great strides in that direction. And that's where I see the thrust of reform in Chicago right now. Well, before I let you go, Paul, is there anything else that you want to add about how we might reimagine public safety to work better for our local residents? Well, I will say that letting each individual police department make their own rules uh, has not worked. And so greater statewide 
licensure uh, certification requirements, which I know Illinois and New Jersey have pursued, is very important. Offering a college for police officers that not only provides longer training um, by professors, you know, experts in their field, but also is situated in relation to the policymaking entities would be really important. It would help translate sort of research-based insights into enforceable best practices. Right now in the United States, training and education of police, research and the administration of police are all separate silos. They don't have the sort of interaction that we would need to ensure that uh, best practices can be devised, implemented, and enforced statewide. That is Paul Hirschfield, Associate Professor of Sociology at Rutgers University. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that's today's Reset. All month on the podcast, we're bringing you our series, Reimagine Chicago, where we ask, how does Chicago work and how could it work better for residents? We're tackling city government, community investment, public safety, and schools. As we roll out this special project, we'll still bring you the weekly news recap every Friday. Thanks for listening. And take a few seconds to leave us a rating and review. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll meet again tomorrow. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.